Uh, Please have that passage there in Romans 11 open before you. I was going to say what I often say, that having the passage will help you follow what I'm saying. I'm not convinced it will, but I'll try. I I hope uh, that it will. Um, I hope that having it open before you uh, will at least mean that you have God's Word open. And um, as I try to guide you through it, he, he may speak to you. Let's, let's ask for God's help just now. Father God, many times in this series we've read uh, parts of Paul's letter to the Romans and we've wondered just how, uh, first of all, what they mean and, and secondly, what they might mean for us. Lord, we pray that you'd make those two things clear to us this evening. Help us to understand your word. But even more than that, help us to to hear your voice in it, to know that you have something to say to us. Lord, come and speak, we pray. Amen. If we had time this evening to do a quick survey of the history of the church, we'd find that in the last two millennia there have been cycles of faithfulness, and failure in the church. Time and again we find the the church becoming disobedient, ineffective, but then time and again we find God in his grace and mercy raising up some group uh, or other to revive the church and to carry forward his purposes in the world. This evening's passage in Romans 11 was written just a, a few short decades after uh, Jesus and the birth of the church. So the cycles of faithfulness and failure that I'm talking about here hadn't really uh, kicked in yet. Romans 11 was written for a a very specific and quite different situation than you and I will ever find ourselves in. But I I still believe that there's something here for us, some important lessons for modern church people like us to learn. I'll come back to that a little bit later on, if you'll allow me. Let me quickly put tonight's passage in its context. By the time we're in Romans 11, we're deep, deep into to Paul's argument here presented in the letter of Romans. In fact, by the time we finish chapter 11 next Sunday evening, we'll have covered all the hard stuff, or most of the hard stuff. Isn't that great? Um, I know I'm glad. I, I don't know about you. Um, most of the, the complex theology is behind us by the time we move into to chapter 12 and beyond. In the opening three chapters of Romans, we learn that all human beings alike are sinners and therefore stand under the judgment of God. In chapters 4 and 5, Paul tells us about a righteousness from God that's been revealed. It's not through keeping the Jewish law that people are made right with him, but it's through faith in his son Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Chapter 6 and 7, Paul gives a a variety of metaphors to talk about this new life in Christ that we're called to. And in chapter 8, he gives a glowing account of life in the spirit of Jesus. But in chapters 9 to 11, he turns his his attention to a question which would not be foremost in our minds, but would have burned in the minds of the Christians in Rome. And the question is this, if God's provided a way for non-Jews 
to come to him without obeying the Jewish law and observing Jewish traditions, what then is the place of the Jews in the purposes of God, present and future? Throughout these three chapters, and we'll see it again this evening, Paul uses a series of rhetorical questions to try and underlie, un, to answer this great underlying question. So in chapter 9, he asks the questions, has God failed the Jews? Is God unfair? And in a complex chapter there, Paul defends God from these charges. In chapter 10, which Gareth guided us through last week, Paul reaffirms the truth that salvation is for all and on the same terms for all. Verse 12 of chapter 10, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Paul's making a point that Jews, every bit as much as Gentiles, are welcome to come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is Paul's great desire, his heartfelt prayer, that his fellow Jews might hear the gospel of Jesus and be saved. So now, in chapter 11, Paul's still in this questioning vein, and he's still trying to resolve this Jewish problem. He's two main questions in this chapter, and the first one we see in chapter 1. I ask you then, says Paul, did God reject his people? And his answer is as emphatic as it possibly could be, by no means. He submits two pieces of evidence. Two pieces of evidence to demonstrate that God has not rejected his people. First of all, his first piece of evidence is himself, Saul of Tarshish. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abram from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul's point is this, you can't get any more Jewish than me. He's a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, one of the two final, finally faithful tribes. So you have Paul, a Jew of Jews, and yet here he is, saved by grace in Jesus Christ, and now taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. Nobody can argue that God has rejected the Jews while Paul or Saul of Tarshish is a Christian because he's a Jew of Jews. So that's Paul's first piece of evidence. He points to himself. He says, if I can be part of this new community of Jesus, then so can any other Jew. His second piece of evidence, Paul reaches a way back into a well-known Old Testament story. And actually, it's one that we looked at not that long ago, uh, last year, when we were looking at some stuff from First and Second Kings, the story of Elijah. In the, the famous story of Elijah uh, on Mount Carmel, you'll know that he was God's prophet. He had a huge triumph over 850 uh, prophets of the pagan gods Baal and Asherah. He'll called, he called down fire from heaven, you might remember that, and he had all these other false prophets killed. The way, when you read that story, you always imagine that that's Elijah set up for life. With a triumph like that, both personal and political, he must be, he, he must be feeling strong, secure, and happy with himself and with God. But that's not how it worked out. 
Whenever Queen Jezebel puts out a warrant on his life, we find that he's terrified, that he runs away, and we find him in just the next chapter, lonely, hungry, exhausted, and depressed. And it's in this depression that he says these words that Paul quotes here in verse 3. Lord, they've killed your prophets, torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. Why is Paul reaching back and reminding us of this Elijah story? It's because there are times when we think that everyone's turned from God. We think we're the only ones left. And the truth is, it's simply not the case. When Elijah was in his depression, God said to him, look at verse 4, I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. If you read the Old Testament, you'll find a pattern emerges. Throughout his dealings with his people, no matter how bad things get, even as, as they were dragged into exile, God always kept a number of people, a remnant who were his. Paul's reminding his readers of this moment in Israel's history. He says in verse 5, so too at the present time there's a remnant chosen by grace. And his point is this, although not all, or, or not even many Jews at this point have responded to Jesus Christ, some have. God still has a remnant And that's the point that Paul's making here. Folks, I wonder do we believe in God's willingness and ability to maintain for himself a remnant? Do you believe that God will always have his people? Or do you fear that the future of God's family of the church is somehow on a knife edge, that it could go one way or the other? Some of you may have had a chance to be at the joint service a couple of weeks ago in Orangefield Presbyterian Church, a joint service of the East Belfast Presbytery. And you'll have heard there a very sobering statistic that David Bruce shared in his talk about the decline of church membership in the latter part of the 20th century in East Belfast. I don't have the exact figures that David Bruce used that evening, but I looked up the following figures this week. Try and get these figures in your head. In 2002, in Presbyterian Church in East Belfast, we recorded a total membership of 10,978 families, just a smidgen below 11,000 families in 2002. By 2010, that figure had dropped to 8,265 not much over 8,000. Statistically speaking, we have lost a quarter of our membership in a mere eight years. And at times like this, we're prone to start to think like Elijah. I'm the only one left, or we're the, the last standing faithful Maybe we're, asked, we're inclined to ask questions like the Jews of Paul's day. Has God rejected his people? 
And the answer is always this, no way. God will always maintain a remnant for himself. This evening we're a testimony to God's grace as we gather here. We're part of a remnant chosen by grace. God's not finished in East Belfast just yet. So far Paul's told us that a small number of Jews have come to faith in Jesus Christ. We're aware that many haven't yet responded to the grace of God. It's tempted, therefore, to imagine that God's plan hasn't worked all that well. In verses 7 to 15, Paul explains how even Israel's failure has a purpose. He tells us in verses 7 to 10 that Israel has been hardened against God. They, they clearly couldn't see or hear. They've stumbled, Paul says. And he picks up some imagery that he used at the end of chapter 9. In verse 11, he explains that Israel's failure has led to the coming of the Gentiles into the family of God. And then he explains what God's purpose in all of this might be. It's to make Israel jealous. Israel falls away from God. At the same time, God brings Gentiles from outside of the Jews into his family. And Jews, seeing this, are woken from their complacency. And they finally see what they're missing out on as they reject God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's Paul's argument or suggestion at this point. Tom Wright reckons that there's probably or possibly an allusion here to the very famous story of the prodigal son. Do you remember that story? The wayward younger son goes, spends half the family's wealth, and then returns and is welcomed with open arms back into the family. His older moral and upright brothers outraged. That is maybe a little bit like what's happening when irreligious Gentiles are welcomed into the family of God. Now the Jews stand in the place of the older brother. What's going on would have stirred a violent emotional reaction in them. And now they have a choice. They can choose to be outraged by God's extravagant grace And if they do, they'll miss out on God's goodness and kindness themselves. Or they can recognize that they need God's grace every bit as much as their Gentile brothers. Then, like the older brother, they can come in and join the party. God's purpose in bringing the Gentiles into his family to stir the jealousy of those Jews who've become complacent and need their hearts rekindled. We're going to spend the last bit of our time on the last, uh, the second part of our our passage there, the the section that's called Engrafted Branches, if you're using the NIV Bible, beginning at, at verse 16, actually. Paul hasn't quite resolved this Jewish question yet. 
Given that most Jewish people have rejected the gospel of the Messiah, does this mean that God's written them off? Granted that some Jews like himself have formed a small remnant of grace that we're thinking about a moment ago, can any more Jews be saved? Is God moving now to concentrate solely on non-Jews or Gentiles? Paul's already hinted at this, at the answer to this. That's certainly not the case. God's planning to save more Jewish people, many more than have come to faith at this time of writing. He backs it up now with two illustrations, one very brief and one that develops into a a sort of a short story. The first illustration, verse 16, it has its roots in the Old Testament sacrificial system. If you wanted to thank God for the harvest, the harvest that was just beginning, you'd bring the first portion or the first fruits of that harvest and you'd offer them to God. If you did that, in a way you were, you were making your whole harvest holy. The, the first part symbolized the whole. So you've dedicated the whole to God. So, Paul says, those small number of Jews who've come to faith early in this harvest of world evangelization, they're like the first fruits of the nation of Israel. Because they've been brought to God That means that in principle, this whole nation has been presented to God. Jews can't be regarded as unholy. They're not automatically outside of the people of God. They can be reached with the gospel. This small number who have already responded demonstrate that. We can share faith with the Jewish people and they can come to know Jesus Christ. For Paul's longer illustration in verses 17 to 24, he takes us into the olive groves. They would have been very widespread, of course, in the land where he was ministering at the time. don't know if you've ever been in an olive grove. I, my closest experience was three trips I made to the Greek islands in the 1990s. So I have lovely memories of driving on a wee uh, scooter to the beach through the olive groves or walking home from a restaurant under a a starlit sky, again, through groves of olive trees. To understand Paul's metaphor, we need to know a couple of things uh, about olive trees. First, they're very, very resistant uh, to being cut down or anything like that, unless you cut them right down and uproot them, or or maybe even burn through the, the trunk of them, they'll live on. Century after century, they'll they'll just keep replicating themselves. They'll keep finding a new way to thrive. Uh, That's important for Paul's argument in a moment. Another thing that people then would have known about olive trees that, that we mightn't be so familiar with is that gardeners from time to time did did a grafting exercise with olive trees. So what you might find is some sort of a, a wild olive that might be a very, very strong plant, but that might not bear any fruit. It was a strong plant on its own terms, but it wasn't producing any olives. The gardener might choose to harness the energy of this strong and unfruitful plant by by grafting in a cultivated, part of a cultivated uh, olive tree 
And then as the, the energy came through the roots of the, of the wild olive, what we'd find is, is olives would, would grow and fruit would be born. This is the process that's in the background of Paul's metaphor here. If you're paying really close attention, you'll notice that Paul's metaphor is actually the other way around. When the Gentiles become Christians, they're like wild branches that are grafted into the original cultivated tree. Paul's well aware that that's not the normal way of things. So he says in verse four, or verse 24, this is contrary to nature. He stresses this because he wants to turn a situation on its head and he wants to confront Gentile Christians with the danger of arrogance. He wants to remind them of something. They are the ones who have been brought into the family of God. It's an extraordinary miracle of God's grace. They have no room, no right, and no reason to boast over the cultivated branches which have for the moment been cut out of the tree. In his commentary, Tom Wright suggests four implications of Paul's teaching here. First of all, he says Paul's not backing down on what he said in chapters 9 and 10. Those Jews who haven't believed the gospel, they really are cut out of the olive tree. Remember, that's why Paul begins this part of his letter by telling us of his heartache for his fellow Jews, the opening verses of chapter 9. That's why he's praying for them and sharing the gospel with them. Uh, That's the stuff Gareth shared with us from chapter 10. Paul's eager to see Jews saved. But as we saw last week in verses 5 to 13 of chapter 10, there's only one way to be saved. It's everyone who calls on the name of the Lord who'll be saved. It's because he knows that this is possible that Paul says in verse 23 that Jews can be grafted back if they do not persist in unbelief. A second point. Paul really does see the people of God as a single family. They're the children of Abraham, but they're now redefined as the followers of Jesus, the Messiah, and they're marked out by their faith in him. Folks, I don't know if we've ever really taken this seriously. I I suspect that in our modern ways of thinking, we probably don't. The church, Paul doesn't use that term here, the church is an essentially Jewish family into which non-Jews have been welcomed and grafted in. We are in continuity with the people of God whom we read about there in the Old Testament. If you are, as I am, a Gentile Christian, then we're branches grafted into the ancient tree of God's people, the Jews. A third thing. God can and he will bring more Jews into his renewed family. There's a kind of a weird thing going on in this passage here because, let me explain why, it's a weird thing to talk about something being hard or easy for God. But that's sort of what Paul's saying here. 
Paul seems to be saying in verse 24 that it's much easier for God to graft Jews back into the tree to which they always belonged than to graft Gentiles in from the outside. God's already doing the harder thing, taking Gentile Christians in Rome. How much easier will it be for God to bring the Jews back in as well? The fourth thing, and this seems to be the real thrust of the passage, and I want you to pay attention to this. Paul's giving a serious warning here to Gentile Christians. They mustn't suppose that they've replaced the Jews in God's plan. The church hasn't become a Gentiles-only family. God hasn't chosen them simply because they're Gentiles. If they begin to think that way, they're in danger of making the exact same mistake that the Jews had made before them. The Jews had imagined that God's grace was tied to a particular ethnic group. If Gentiles go down the same line and rely on their ethnic identity instead of faith in Jesus Christ, they can expect God to react in the same way that he had done with unbelieving Israel. There are no promises of salvation to those who simply believe it's their birthright. I've dealt with Paul's argument. But I want to finish just a couple of minutes to try and discern what this might have to say to us And before I ask that question, we need to ask the question, why did Paul say it all to the church in Rome? Why did Paul issue this solemn warning? Were the Gentile Jews already showing signs of arrogance, looking down on their Jewish brothers and sisters? We can't be sure, but the way the letter is written, it certainly would imply that. Remember the background that I outlined a couple of weeks ago about what's happening in the church in Rome. Around the time that Paul's writing, a large number of Jewish exiles are being allowed to return to the city of Rome. They'd been banished a few years earlier by imperial decree. And some of these returning Jews are Christians and they're coming back into the church. Now bear in mind that most people in Rome at the time, are anti-Christian. They're suspicious of Christians, they look down on Christians, and they dislike them. Do you see how easy it would have been for the Gentile Christians to hold up a closed door to bar the way for their Christian brothers and sisters from the Jewish line to come and be full members of the church family. It would have been so easy for them to say to their neighbors around them, oh yes, this faith of ours, it it started out as a Jewish thing, but but we've moved on from that. We're beyond that now. Paul won't allow it. He warns them against rejecting their Jewish roots since they were, the Jews are God's people being used to bring the gospel to the world. What on earth, if anything, can all of this possibly mean for us? 
I've said it a couple of times over these last few weeks, and I have to say it again, Paul's writing to a unique and different context. It's not our context, so the parallels are not immediate. But I want to offer some suggestions about how God's Word might speak to us this evening. Paul's concern is that Gentile Christians who have been welcomed by grace into the family of God don't become arrogant over and against those who were part of God's family before them. Look at verse 20. He says, Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. I began this evening by talking about times when God brings renewal to a failing church. The early, the early, the early reformers, they were outraged by the moral laxity of the church of their day, and God used that by his Spirit to bring renewal to the church. At a time when many Protestant denominations were theologically liberal, God raised up evangelicals, those who were committed to standing on the truth of his word. Even within denominations that are predominantly evangelical, many congregations have given in to a dead traditionalism, and God is sending new waves of renewal and more vibrant communities into his church. Friends, it seems to me that the lesson from Romans and the lesson of church history is that one day's renewal movement can easily become the next day's dead wood, ready to be pruned and thrown onto the fire. I wonder if there's a warning that we need to hear here this evening at Kirkpatrick Memorial. If ever a congregation feels like a place where new life was grafted in to to an old stump or root, then surely there's a lot of that in us. If ever a congregation has known God's gracious renewal, surely we'd want to be the first to say, Amen. Thank you, Lord. And how are we to respond? Not with arrogance, but with a humble fear of the Lord. If God cut out those who went before us at many times uh, as the church journeyed through the ages, we have no reason to believe it will be any different for us if we lose our first love and wander from him. Friends, let us never, ever presume on the grace of God. Let us never, ever regard ourselves as superior in any way to any who have failed him before. But let's humbly walk before him and ask that he keep us. Let us pray.
Father God, we thank you that your purposes in this world are never foiled, but are always worked out to perfection. We thank you that you always have a remnant for yourself. By your grace, Lord, we we say that we long to be a part of it. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us and shown us in Jesus. We thank you for bringing us to, to a place like this at a time like this to be a part of your family. Lord, may we never presume on your grace. May we always look to welcome more and more of your presence and work in our lives. And Lord, like the Apostle Paul, may we hunger and pray that others would join us. Lord, keep us humble before you, grateful to you, and rejoicing in your goodness and mercy. Amen.